All right. How's everybody doing this evening? How many of you ladies were here at the ladies' event all day? I heard you guys had a great time. Good, good, good. I'm surprised you guys are here after all that day. Uh, Probably uh, a little bit worn out, and I'm glad you guys are here. Glad you guys made it. We're going to wrap up the book of Ruth. Now, we skipped a couple weeks in there. We had a couple guest speakers in there, but we're going to wrap up the book of Ruth. So get your Bibles out, your phone, whatever you use, follow along, and I'm going to pray. God, we thank you so much for your power and your presence in this place tonight. We've felt it uh, in the worship We've experienced it through fellowship and conversation, and now we we are going to experience it through the preaching of your word. And so we invite that into our life right now, and we just say, have your way in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the book of Ruth, it concludes and closes out with a genealogy. Now, how, how many of you guys love genealogies, right? When you, you're reading the Bible and you start to see all this you know, this person begat that person, and this person begat that person. And, and at first glance, it seems insignificant because a lot of them just seem like a bunch of names. And, uh, and that's kind of the way this seems in Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. And Aminadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. And then Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed. Now, how many of you guys are going to be brutally honest in church right now? How many of you guys, when you hit your Bible reading plan and you hit the genealogies, you start to skim just a little bit? Maybe just a little bit, a little bit honest. All right, I, I was there. I was I was reading this morning actually on one of my Bible programs, and I was I was like tempted to start skimming. Um, but what we're going to see today is we're going to look at several genealogies in scripture and you're going to see how important it really is. And so it may sound like, like don't gloss over, don't let your eyes gloss over because we're going to see that it seems insignificant, but it really turns out that this genealogy in the book of Ruth is the most important part of the whole story. And I don't have time to preach the whole book of Ruth again. You're going to have to go back and catch up on that if you missed that. Um, But Because we read the last little bit here, verse 21 again. Let's read that again. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz and Ruth fathered Obed. Now Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So here we see the whole culmination of what's happening in this book of Ruth being on the outside, being an outsider, being grafted in. She marries Boaz. And this is one of the most important parts of the whole story because it reveals that through their son, Obed, ultimately comes King David. And there's a whole richness into the story when we begin to look at it. In fact, we find that Ruth ends up being King David's great-grandmother. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? For somebody who had been on the outside, for someone who had been... uh, I mean, just, just barely getting by in a sense that we see that, that roughly a thousand years after Ruth, that Ruth's name ends up in the genealogy uh, in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter one, in the genealogy and the lineage of Christ, that through Ruth ultimately comes the Messiah. How do you guys know this genealogy all of a sudden starts taking on enormous importance? Because if all of these pieces hadn't come together, then we wouldn't be able to see it play out like the Bible has it play out. And so here's the thing. Through Boaz and Ruth ultimately comes Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. That we tend to think 
here and now, not there and then. Let me put it another way. We tend to think this year instead of this century. We tend to to think seasonally instead of generationally. But you realize that God is in the here and now, but God is also in the there and then. That God sees from a generational perspective. And those people, if you want to be a person that makes a lasting impact and, be, and have a significant impact, those who make a lasting impact are those who have what I call a generational faith. Not just a here and now, me and mine, but a generational faith. And that's what we see when we start to look at these genealogies. Even in the genealogy, we see that God thinks genera- generationally. I saw this years ago, and uh, I saw this from, from Adam to Noah. You see all the names, and you know that the Bible names actually mean something, right? And uh, so somebody put this together and started to study the different meanings of the names and how even as you begin to look at the genealogy from the beginning through Noah, you can see that the genealogies and the name meanings tell a story. So put up this graphic right here. So we see Adam, which means man, Seth, his son, which means appointed, Enosh, which means mortal, Canaan, which means sorrow, Mahalalel, the blessed God, Jared shall come down, Enoch, teaching Methuselah, his death shall bring, Lamech, that means despairing and Noah is comfort and rest. And if we read this all the way through, we begin to see a prophecy of what Jesus is going to do. And, and really the story of the, of the scriptures, man is a poured, pointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. How many of you guys think that God knows what he's doing when he puts the genealogies together? When he orders your name, it has a meaning. It has an importance to it. And we see that, you know, I was thinking about this very thing that I'd heard as I was preparing for this message. And someone in the church actually sent me this very thing at, at around the same time I was thinking of it. I was like, that's a significant thing right there. And so there's several things we're going to learn today about generational faith. And, and how the genealogies and how God strategically places people in certain spots. That, that Point number one is this. Generational faith trusts where God strategically positions us. See, God is strategically, he has strategically positioned you where you are. And it's not by accident that you have been placed where you are. That many times if you're thinking just the here and now, it may not make sense where you are right now. But as you zoom out and you begin to see the bigger picture of what God is doing, then you begin to trust. Sometimes we don't get to see it, but we trust the the place where God has strategically positioned us. I I was thinking about that this week and I thought about this scene in Jurassic Park. How many of you guys have seen Jurassic Park? It's an older movie now. But I thought about this particular scene where they're in this crisis moment and at the very end of this scene, you'll see that they were very strategically positioned. Let's watch. Just give me a hand. Just like coming out of a treehouse. Did your dad ever build your treehouse? No. Let me tell. 
thing about climbing is you never, never look down. This never. is impossible. So, how am I going to do this? It's okay. I'm going to help you with the footing. <laughs> wonder about that clip like why didn't they just go on the other side of the tree I just always wondered that and I just saved all of that but some of you feel that way in life right now you feel like the car of life is coming after you you feel like you're getting ready to be crushed and I don't have to describe it for you because you're feeling it but what if God has strategically positioned you what if God knows exactly where it's going to land and God has you positioned and he's got you in his hand and he has safety there? See, God strategically positions us for maximum impact. And you may feel like you're in an insignificant place right now. You may just feel like you're a name in a genealogy. But God is positioning you for, for maximum impact. Let's look at another genealogy. We just saw that uh, one of those names in that from Adam to Noah was Methuselah. Now, how many of you guys have heard about Methuselah? Maybe some of you guys have. Methuselah, we find him in a genealogy in, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 27. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Now, he lived a good long life, but that's, he gets a couple lines in Scripture. Now, the thing about Methuselah, Methuselah's name is prophetic. His very name is prophetic. What was his prophecy about? When his parents named him, they named him a prophecy. His name is prophetic about an event that if you've been around church or if you've been around Sunday school or even if you haven't, most likely every single person has heard of this story. And many of you guys know what it is. It's the story of Noah and the ark. His name was a prophecy about one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And we saw in that last genealogy that his name meant his death shall bring. Another, another translation of his name is this. When he dies, it shall come. That's what Methuselah's name means. Now, I spent some time one time, and I started to calculate through all the genealogies, and I, 969 years, and it gets pretty confusing as you get in there. But I calculated it all out, and sure enough, the year that Methuselah died was the year the flood happened. And so Methuselah played an important part, and people knew. Man, how many guys, if you knew that's what it, he's like, something bad is going to happen when this guy dies. How many of you guys would be trying to keep Methuselah alive, right? It's like, not on my watch, right? And sure enough, when he died, 
it came. The prophecy was fulfilled. Now, here's the thing about Methuselah. God placed Methuselah specifically and strategically right where and when he wanted him to be. But here's the thing about Methuselah. Even though when Methuselah died, the prophecy was fulfilled, Methuselah never saw the prophecy fulfilled. In fact, he always knew that he never would. Because he needed to die, then the prophecy would be fulfilled. He would never see it happen. You talk about zooming out and living by faith. See, some of us are strategically positioned where God has us. And he has us not just where we're at for the here and now, but for another generation. And we have to be the kind of people that have generational faith. Uh, just, I, I just want you to know and hear this tonight that, that many times when, we, when we're entrusting God, that we're in the right place at the right time, but we just have to have faith eyes to see it. I, I've told this story before, but it's so important in my life. It was a game changer in my life. I was... Uh, just turned 20 years old, and I'd felt called to ministry, felt called to be a youth pastor. I was attending a very large church and just serving in the church and in the youth ministry for several years, and, and it was a large youth ministry. I had been, I'd prayed about going away to Bible college several times because I thought, if you want to be in ministry, if you want to be a pastor, that's what you're supposed to do. And every time I would get a no from God. Every time I was supposed to go away or I'd find an opportunity to go away and to get, go to Bible college... I'd hear God say no. And I was just working construction. And I was just, I knew that wasn't where I was supposed to be. But at the same time, I knew I wasn't supposed to leave it. And so I just continued to be faithful. And, and what seemed like life was passing me by. Have you guys ever felt that before? Like life is passing me by. I was 20 years old and I felt like I was 85. I felt like I was, my life was already over. I felt like I had no more, uh, like all my opportunities. But then the youth pastor of the church where we were at he was, he was going back to his home church and going back to his home state, and he was going to be a youth pastor there, so there was a, a vacancy. So they started to search nationwide, because this was a large church, so nationwide they're searching for a youth pastor. And I'm having thoughts like, will I be able to get along with the new youth pastor? I, I love being here, but you know, uh, w- w- you know, what will that be like? And they brought people in, and they were t- testing them out and stuff. And here I am, just turning 20, no experience, no Bible college, no resume, and I hear God on, I hear God on a, a Monday, and he says, fast for three days. So I went, and I was like, okay, so I'm going to fast. On Wednesday, the end of the fast, the three days, I heard God say, you are going to be the next youth pastor of this church. Now, you got to understand, there's thousands in the church. The, the senior pastor barely didn't even know me, knew of me, saw me because I led worship from time to time at youth. Uh, I, I was in that season of leading worship, but, worship, but he, he didn't really know who I was, except for that I was like one of the guys that was serving on the team. So that Wednesday, out of the blue, in an improbable way, remember, Monday fast, Wednesday, God says, you're going to be the next youth pastor. I went and I told my youth pastor, who was still there, hadn't left yet, and he said, I believe that's true. Friday, remember this is all happening in a week, Friday, we had Friday night church, and after Friday night church, uh, one of the staff members came up to me, and, you know, I'm not used to interacting with those staff members, and they came up and they said, uh, the pastor wants to see you in his office after church tonight. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. So that Friday night after church, I go up into his office, and he starts interviewing me for the job. Of course, I was not prepared <laughs> for the interview, 
I had no he said, And then he said, put a resume together and we'll meet Monday for lunch. So I didn't have a resume, so I made one up. And... Uh, just made, like, made it really look good that I was a person, you know, that had lived. And, uh, you know, you're putting anything in there. And on Monday, they gave me the job. Seven days' time, I go from unknown, no, no opportunity, to a week later, I'm on staff at a, as a youth pastor of a megachurch. Now, how many of you guys know that's something only God can do, right? Let, let me tell you what else that happened there. God strategically placed me at the right place and at the right time. But you know what I had to do? I had to trust that God had strategically placed me when everything else told me something different. That what looked like insignificance, that God had a destiny. And that was a turning point in my life. See, generational faith trusts where God has strategically positioned us because we know that God sees a bigger picture than what we see. And some of us, we get tempted to bail or bold. We get tempted to do something else. Or, or what we get tempted to do is to manufacture our own destiny, our own calling. How many of you guys have been there before? I've been tempted to do that. Instead of trusting where God has strategically placed us. Point number two is this, that generational faith says, I want to see, but I don't have to see. Because we want to see God's big plan, right? We want to see everything that God has planned. Generational faith says, God, I really want to see what's next. But I trust you so much that even if I had the opportunity to, I don't have to. Because I trust you. That's what generational faith does. So I'm going to dig into another genealogy that what we find is we see something very, very interesting. Because we know the story of Ruth, that Ruth was very faithful to her mother-in-law, Naomi, right? You remember that story? She left Moab. She went with her mother-in-law back to Naomi's home, home country. She was very faithful to her mother-in-law. And in a sense, the story of Ruth has several different layers. And one of the layers is that it's about Ruth and her mother-in-law. But did you know that Ruth had another mother-in-law? When she married Boaz, she inherited a mother-in-law. Now, the interesting thing is who the mother-in-law is. Because as we look through the genealogies, we, we find something very interesting. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 4, And Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Whoa, Rahab. Who's Rahab? Well, let's back it all the way up. Rahab was a prostitute. In this story, you remember the story of Joshua? When Joshua and the spies are getting ready to go in, Joshua sends spies. And Joshua had been a spy 40 years earlier, but then he sends his own spies into Jericho when it's time to start moving. And these guys go into the house of the harlot Rahab. Rahab hides them, and she all of a sudden, I mean, she was, a, she was probably well-known throughout the city because everybody knew her for all the wrong reasons. She was probably wealthy, actually, because she had a house on the wall, but her life was a wreck. Her life, she was used by people. She was like, I mean, she was people's property and just, she had a horrible, messed up life. And then all of a sudden she hears these spies coming in and she, we find this in Joshua chapter two, verse nine. And, and it said to the men, this is Rahab. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear that has fallen of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. And then she has hope for a brand new life. 
We see this in, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Now, many of you guys remember the story. They said, that's fine. Because you've done something for us, tie a scarlet rope on the, on the window, and when we come in and we take over, and believe me, they did, we will save whoever's in your house. And Rahab was saved that day when all of Jericho was destroyed. And Rahab marries Salmon. Now, this, Rahab and Salmon, they have Boaz. And Boaz is their son. So from this this, this character in Rahab who was a messed up life, she produces a Boaz who was a man of noble character and a type of Christ. How many of you parents, you look at your life and you're like, and I've screwed a lot of stuff up, right? My life has been screwed up. How many of you guys have been there before? How is there any hope for my kids, right? How is there any hope? If, if you get anything out of this, I, I want you to know you can come from a messed up life and have a God type destiny in your future. So that ultimately we see again that Rahab is in the lineage of Christ. You see, we, we see this story that she says, God, I, I, I want to see the end picture, but I don't have to see. I'll tie the scarlet rope there anyway. I, I know they're coming in and I want to have assurances. And she tried to get as many as she could, but she simply gathered her family in the house and said, I will trust. I, I, don't, I want to see, but I don't have to see. And I'm just going to simply obey. Generational faith says, I don't have to see the whole picture. I'm simply going to trust what you, what you say, God. How many of you guys know that that's a hard place to be sometimes, isn't it? When, when everything doesn't look right, when it looks like the invading armies are coming in and you don't know whether God is going to be faithful to his word or not, by the circumstances, you just simply say, I know God, and I know he's faithful to his word. What if God is building a picture in you that you just can't see? What if God is working in your life in a way that it looks one way from your perspective, but from God, if you turn it around just a little bit from God's perspective, it looks totally different. I, I saw these art pieces that demonstrate exactly this, that, that there's one way, when you look at it one way, and this is our perspective, we can only see this one picture. But what if, as we zoomed around, and maybe not even now, but maybe in eternity, we'll see what God was actually building. Let's, let's see this example.
So you have no idea what kind of picture God's building in you. We really don't. We, we can have glimpses of it. We can see pieces of it. But I want you to understand that generational faith understands that I want to see the full picture. But I know there's a lot of times I just, I'm just not going to be able to. But I'm going to continue to walk anyway. You may see one angle, but God has a picture of something he's created that you don't get to see just yet. And God may put you in the oddest of places from your perspective. He may put you in the weirdest spot in the genealogy. He may put you in the weird, it may look weird on your, the sculpture that he's building in you. And it doesn't look right in the natural, but from the kingdom perspective, all of a sudden there's a new picture that gets revealed when you zoom out. One day it's going to make sense. And you're just in the in-between, between when it, it makes sense and when it, when it doesn't make sense right now. And the question is, can you trust God with the parts you can't see? See, mature faith is measured that way. Mature faith is measured in how much you can trust God with the parts you, you can't see. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. If we, if we measure our faith by our sight, it's not genuine faith. And mature faith is measured by how much we trust God with the parts we don't see. You see, generational faith simply says this, God, I want to see, but I don't have to see. And whatever part you want to reveal to me, that's just fine. Point number three is this. Generational faith plays the long game. Talking about, like, in sports, like, like we're, we're not just playing for a certain down in football. We're playing for the overall game. <laughs> we got to just stick with our game plan because if we follow it out, we're not, we're not worried if we lose it on one play, but we're playing the long game. We're playing, the, we're playing not just for the here and now, but for the there and then. See, God has strategically purposed you or positioned you for a purpose. And you may not, and this is something that's hard for us to take, but if we are true believers, if we true, truly believe in eternity and God's big picture, that God has strategically positioned us where he needs us to be, but we may not even be able to see it in our lifetime. Just like Methuselah, he didn't get to see it in his lifetime. He, he, he trusted God with it, but he didn't get to see it in his lifetime. And we see another sort of genealogy in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, we call it the hall of faith because it lists all of these people. Uh, but we, we see something very interesting. And I'm going to read several verses here. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of, of Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to, fight, to flight, women received back their dead by the resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and in mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Listen to this. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, these people lived their lives and didn't get to see the fulfillment 
of what they were living for, but trusted that the new covenant was coming. Trusted that the Messiah was coming. Trusted that there is a better way. These people, never, they, they never saw the fulfillment of what they were living for. But they said, I'm playing the long game. You realize we're playing the long game. This Christian life is the long game. Following Jesus is the long game. Forgiveness is the long game. Love is the long game. It's long suffering. <laughs> I tell this to church planners that I meet with all the time. I say, guys, we're playing the long game. Don't get hooked, caught up in the, you know, how many people were here this week and what the budget is this week. And, and if you don't know much about the church planning movement today, a lot of the church planning movement says you got to go and raise 500, you know, half a million dollars to start a church, and you got to have 500 people at your launch day on day one, or somehow you failed. And, and that's what's going on. And, and you know what that breeds? Disappointment and comparison. And that's not just happening with church planners, it happens in all of our lives. Because we're not playing the long game. We look at somebody else's marriage and we say, well, what, what, why can't mine be that way? We look at, at how fast somebody else got a breakthrough. Why can't that be me? We're playing the long game. We hang in there. We play the long game. We started this church with just a handful of people and the money in our pocket. That was it. But we trusted God with the long game. We don't rise and fall on every single thing that happens week in and week out. I don't know where you are in the genealogy, but you realize every single one of us are somewhere in that genealogy right now in God's story, in God's genealogy? See, if, if the Bible were still being written, your name would be there somewhere in the genealogy. And I don't know where you are in the genealogy. I said it a couple weeks ago, and I'll say it again. I don't know if I said it in every service, but we tend to measure visibility when God tends to measure, I say God does, God measures fruit. We'd like our name to be very prominent in the genealogy. We don't want just a mention. We want a story. But God measures fruit. Talking about churches and pastors. See, in my, in my world, in the United States world, how, how do you know if you're a successful pastor? Well, according to our culture today, one of the easiest ways I could say that people measure that is by how many people know your name. How well known you are. That's how successful you are. If you go over into the underground church in China, do you know how you know how successful of a pastor you are in the underground church of, of China? By how few people know your name. Because the fewer people that know your name, that means the more effective you are at planting churches in the underground that you have not risen to popularity and fame, but you have worked in, in, in obscurity to further the gospel. How many of you guys know we got it upside down, don't we? Can I tell you that that's not just for pastors? That's not just for guys in, in, in my chair. That's, that's for every single one of us. Until we let go of how many people know my name or how many people recognize what I do or how, what, what, I, I want to be known or I want to be successful. Or, listen, all those aren't all bad, but if they become an idol, then it, it needs to be thrown away. I'm going to close up with this, have the worship team come back up. I'm going to give one last genealogy. It's kind of, a, kind of a more modern day genealogy. And some of you guys have heard this before, and I've shared this before, but I think it's really important that I share this. And, and it starts off with this. There was a Sunday school teacher named 
Mr. Kimball. And Mr. Kimball was faithfully teaching his Sunday school. And in 1858, he, uh, he led a Boston shoe clerk to the Lord. And this guy got saved under this Sunday school's teaching, Sunday school teacher's teaching. This guy who got saved, this Boston shoe clerk, um, was a guy whose name was Dwight. And some of you guys will recognize the name is Dwight L. Moody. Some of you guys may recognize that. Some of you may not under, know these names. But Dwight L. Moody became a Christian, and he became an evangelist in England. And in 1879, he, he led kind of an awakening in the heart of this guy named Frederick. His name was Frederick B. Meyer, and he was a pastor of a small church. And Frederick got on fire for God. He began to evangelize, and he went over and started evangelizing in American college campuses. And he began to evangelize and stir things up. And, and as he was doing that, he led someone to Christ, a guy named J. Wilbur Chapman. He led to Christ. Now, J. Wilbur Chapman, he began to get later on involved in the YMCA work, and he wanted to have some evangelistic meetings. And so he began to uh, seek out how that could happen. And he hired a former professional baseball player to come in who had been saved, who came to Christ and was now evangelist. A guy by the name of Billy Sunday came in and started to lead evangelistic crusades. And Billy Sunday held a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he began to lead a lot of people to the Lord. And several people got really excited about that revival. And Billy Sunday left, and these guys were just excited about this revival that had happened in North Carolina. And so they decided to have another revival. And so they brought in this guy, and his name was Mordecai Ham, and he came and started another revival. And he came to town to preach, and as he was preaching, there was someone there in the audience that he led to the Lord. And many of you guys will know this name. His name was Billy Graham. And many of us know the name Billy Graham, and we might not know all of those other names that I listed. We know that. Billy Graham, some of the just basic statistics that from the years of 1947 to the 1977, so just a 30-year span, he preached to 50, over 53 million people in person. That's not counting television or radio. That's not counting the years since 1977. And during that time, 1 .6, over 1.6 million people were recorded to make decisions for Christ. But the way I think about it is that it all started back with Dr. Kimball, Mr. Kimball, the Sunday school teacher. And I don't know if we have any Billy Grahams in the audience today, but I bet we have some Mr. Kimballs. I bet we have some people who said, you know what, I'll be faithful to teach my Sunday school class. I'll be faithful because I trust that God, you have strategically positioned me for a purpose and Mr. Kimball, I bet he couldn't see a Billy Graham coming out of his genealogy, his spiritual genealogy. But he was faithful where he's at. And I just want to encourage all of us that all of us have a genealogy that we're a part of right now. And we don't know what that will lead to. But we have to be strategically faithful in the strategic position that God has placed us, trusting that even though I want to see, I don't have to see, that God, I'm playing the long game. And God, I trust that you've strategically placed me where I'm at. One last scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? 
servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So listen to this. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his, la- to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. No matter how big of ministry you have or want to have, no matter where you find yourself on the flow chart of the company, no matter where you're at in life, whether you think life has passed you by, every single one of us can do what this scripture said, be faithful where we've been put and to plant seeds, to plant seeds, to plant seeds, to plant seeds. Every single person can plant a seed. And we have to trust that someday when all the books are closed and all the genealogies have been written, that we will have been found faithfully right where God placed us.